0: Thank you, Ron. If you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. I don't really uh, track whatever the latest news is with the royal family, as some people like to do, uh, but apparently pastor dominic over at the bridge does no he simply reminded me uh preaching team this week of something that i think all of you probably have caught for a number of months now but 2022 marks the 70th anniversary of queen elizabeth's ascension to the throne of england in 1952 It is the longest reign of any monarch in the history of England. Queen Elizabeth, if you're watching this morning, congratulations (laughs) on your long reign. But she's not a young girl anymore. Um, She is now 95 years old and will not stay on the throne forever. Prince Charles is the next in line. And if he succeeds, Queen Elizabeth, there will be a major ceremony that will take place. I suspect that um, we will be able to watch that on television. That ceremony um, is called a coronation or a crowning. And on that day, there will be great crowds of people gather both physically and virtually to witness all of the pomp and all of the circumstance. Charles will be escorted through the streets by soldiers. He will come in to Westminster Abbey wearing a robe of scarlet, a symbol of his authority. He'll sit on the throne and there, important nobles and dignitaries will be His right hand and his left. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest priest in the Church of England, will anoint his head with oil. Then they will place in his hand the sovereign scepter. They'll put a crown of pure gold encrusted with precious jewels upon his head. And then when all of that is said and done, The people will shout out together, God save the king. God save the king. God save the king. In other words, may this king be successful so that we can experience the blessings of his rule. In our passage this morning, we have a coronation of sorts as well. The coronation of Christ the king, but oh, what a very different coronation it is. Sure, you'll notice as we read, there are soldiers and priests and shouting crowds and scarlet robes and scepters and crowns. But there is also a cross. It's a cruel coronation. Instead of the people receiving Christ as king they are mocking him as king because they don't have a category in their mind for a crucified king And so instead of saying at the end of our passage God save the king they mock him and say let god save him If he desires him. A cruel coronation. And yet, a true coronation. It is an enthronement. Simply an ironic enthronement. Christ is crowned as king. But the way he is crowned. The way He ascends the throne is through being lifted up on a cross. It doesn't make sense to anybody at the scene. It hasn't made sense to most people throughout all of history. It doesn't make sense to the Gentile soldiers. It doesn't make sense to the Jews who pass by. To the religious leaders. But for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it should make perfect sense to us. Remember what Paul said? The cross is folly to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those of us who are being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I have a simple goal this morning. For those of you who have not yet come to see that Jesus is King and that He was enthroned on the cross, that you would and that you'd bow the knee. For the rest of you to be reminded of what a Savior we have. What a King that we have. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 27 of chapter 27 reading through verse 44. Notice all of the elements of the coronation are present. Pilate in verse 26 has delivered him over to be crucified and we pick up the narrative in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. An ironic enthronement. He's hailed as king, but it is a mockery because nobody in this passage sees how any king worth his weight could be crucified as a criminal. But, as I've said, even though he is being hung up on a cross, he is also being lifted up as the king in these verses. An ironic enthronement. I simply want to show you that that's what's going on today. So I'm going to draw out four ironies of the cross. Four ironies of the cross. Again, my goal is for you to walk out of here either being convinced that the crucified one is the king if you are not yet and for all of the rest of you to thank God for what he has done. Let's begin with the first irony. The man mocked as king truly is a king. This is found in verses 27 to 31. After Jesus' trial, Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified, but he doesn't go straight away to the cross before he's crucified. The soldiers take him in to Pilate's headquarters. And we're told that many soldiers, a battalion of soldiers gathered around him. A battalion would be about 600. I don't know if they're all there or just part of them. But what you need to know is that there are a lot of people participating in or witnessing what is about to take place. And this is where the coronation begins. The soldiers begin by stripping him of his clothes and putting a scarlet robe on him. This was likely a military cloak. Would have been kind of a shoddy job of making it scarlet. It wouldn't have been real fancy, but it would have to do for the occasion. It would serve as his royal robe. Then they twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a reed in his hand to serve as a scepter. And then after all of that, we are told at the very middle of the paragraph, which is intentional that it's in the middle for emphasis, that they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They clearly don't believe he's a king or if he is, his authority is clearly no power against Rome. It's all irony when they say, hail king of the Jews. It would be like somebody saying to the Tar Heels last week, congratulations on your win. Good job. They clearly don't see him as a king. It is a cruel coronation. What follows next happens in the exact reverse order of what came before so that we can see this central declaration of hailing him, ironically, as king of the Jews. They spit on him. They strike him on the head that they had just crowned with the scepter that they had just placed in his hand. Then they strip him of the clothes that they had put on him. Put on his own clothes and lead him away to be crucified. They are being ironic. But this is the thing. There is an irony behind the irony. They are ironically mocking him as king. The irony behind this irony is that he truly is the king. They simply don't see it. Matthew intends for us to see this irony behind the irony. How do I know that that's the case? How does the first verse of his gospel begin? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic king has come and the entire gospel has been demonstrating that he is who matthew announced that he was and who jesus claimed to be the messiah the king so that when the soldiers mock him as king of the jews we as readers are meant to hear the irony he is the king of the jews is they post the ironic sign over His head on the cross that says, Jesus, the King of the Jews. We are meant to see that here is the throne of the King of the Jews. This is the irony behind the irony. Jesus is King. It's simply that what His kingship entailed was different than anyone ever expected. Praise God. Praise God that it didn't happen the way that everybody expected. But it did happen the exact way that it was planned. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus is not simply some, or it's not at all, some unfortunate detour. An aberration of the plan on Jesus' way to the top. It is actually the climax of His enthronement as the King. And that leads us to our second irony. What looks like failure is actually the fulfillment of God's plan. This is drawn out in verses 32-38. to Jesus certainly looks like a failure here in every sense of the word. But did you notice one thing that highlights his apparent failure is here's a man who can't even carry his own cross. So worn out from being in a trial all night, from being beat, whipped, He can't even carry His own cross. And so they compel a man named Simon, the Cyrene, to do it for Him. Jesus isn't looking very strong. The scene screams failure. We've already seen the apparent failure of His trial. The only innocent man to ever stand trial is condemned as guilty And now will be hung up on a cross between two criminals as we read in verse 38 and then again in verse 34. A failed Messiah? Well, there are a couple of clues in the text that show us that he is not failing at all. But what is happening to him is a fulfillment of God's plan. I could say so much about the crucifixion. But I want to highlight, unlike what so many popular books do today or movies about Jesus' crucifixion, what the text highlights. And I believe that that is in part the fulfillment of God's plan. We see this beginning in verses 33 to 34 where the soldiers offered Jesus a drink mixed with gall or In other words, bile. What's going on in these verses? I think there's something happening at a couple of different levels. The first level is simply the fact that they offer him this drink mixed with gall. What's going on here? I think there's a couple of options. For one, it could be simply a cruel joke. How many kids in this room have ever put something nasty in the drink of one of their siblings? and then offer it to them to drink. This could be cruel, not just a joke, but cruel, in that this man, who is extremely thirsty, they're offering him something to drink, but they've spiked his drink with something gross inside, so that when he tastes it, they can laugh again at him. That may be what's going on. Another thing that may be happening is the gall, the bile, put in the drink could have been used as a narcotic. And it was something that they were doing to try and help alleviate the suffering that was coming or that he was experiencing on the cross. If that's what's happening, then I think Jesus' refusal of the drink is to say, I'm not going to go through this intoxicated. I'm going to be fully conscious of what's happening. I will endure the cross with a clear mind. Regardless of what their intentions were, the drink they offer Jesus is meant to draw our attention, this is the point I'm wanting to highlight, to Psalm 69, verse 21. Psalm 69, David is suffering at the hands of his enemies because of his loyalty to God. He says a number of things in that psalm, but one of the things he says, he's lamenting what's going on, is that they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Matthew intends for us to see in Jesus on the cross that he is in fact the Davidic king. The fact that he's on the cross doesn't call into question his kingship. In fact, it confirms it. He won't drink the cup that the soldiers offer him because he is committed to his loyalty to God. He won't drink the cup that they offer to him because he fully intends to drink the cup that his father has given to him. The cup of God's wrath dealt out on the cross. There's another allusion to the Psalms in verse 35. After Jesus is crucified, the soldiers divided his garments by casting lots, which is a reference to Psalm 22, a great passage for you to meditate on this week. There are many allusions to the death of Christ in this psalm. But the point of it here is simply another reference to the fact that Jesus is the Davidic king, as Matthew announced at the beginning that he was, who is suffering wrongly at the hands of his enemies, and yet all according to plan. All of this shows that Jesus is fulfilling his role as the Davidic king. What was true of David from the moment he was anointed? He was opposed. He suffered. Jesus is doing the same. It doesn't call into question His rule. It confirms that He is the King of the Jews. But another part of the irony is that as they mock Him as King of the Jews, they don't even believe He is the King of the Jews. But when He is raised on the third day, He will say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not only is he the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the king of all of the heavens and the earth. The most powerful king who has ever lived. Who now sits on an eternal throne whose kingdom will extend to the very ends of the earth. So the most powerful king, the most powerful monarch, far more powerful than Elizabeth II, anybody that preceded her, anybody that follows her, far more powerful. And yet his coronation, there is no pomp, no circumstance. It begins with a cross, but it is not failure. It is the fulfillment of God's plan. That's the second irony. The third, the man who seems powerless is working in power. This comes out in verses 39 to 40. The mocking continues here, but it's no longer the pagan Gentile soldiers. It is Jesus' own people, the Jews. Jesus is hanging on the cross and people begin to pass by. This is a public crucifixion. He would have been out in plain sight for everybody to see. And as people pass by, we are told that they deride him and wag their heads. That's another reference to Psalm 22, by the way. And they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Clearly, another ironic statement. But as with the other ironic statements in the passage, their ironic statement, there's an irony that is behind the irony. Their ironic statement is, how could anybody destroy or rebuild a temple that can't even get themselves off of a cross? Now Jesus had made a claim that if he destroyed This temple, that he would raise it in three days, but that was not a reference to the temple building. It was a reference to his body. And so what's ironic is the very thing that they're mocking him for claiming is happening (laughs) right now in front of their very eyes. His temple, his body is being destroyed. And so guess what? It will also be raised up on the third day. And when Jesus did rise from the dead, the irony of their mockery was there for all who had eyes to see, to see. The reason I say that what seemed like powerless, that what seemed like it was powerless is actually Jesus working in power has to do with the reference to the temple. The temple was the great meeting place between God and man. That's why all of these pilgrims have flooded into Jerusalem at this time. They have come to meet with God at the temple. The people of God, although sinful, could meet with their holy God through the blood of a substitutionary Sacrifice offered by a priest. What's going on is something very powerful in this moment. Jesus is offering his blood as that perfect sacrifice on the cross. So that people can be restored to a right relationship with God once and for all. They won't have to come back repeatedly to the temple. The temple will become obsolete Once Jesus is raised from the dead, they will be able to have perfect access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, friends. And what does Paul say about the gospel? It is the power of God for those who believe. It is the power of God for salvation to those who would believe. Jesus may seem powerless to do anything, but what he was doing was working in power. I want you to notice something else. The passers-by say to him, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. There's something very significant going on here. It's subtle, but significant. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Think back for a moment. Have we heard this kind of language before? In the Gospel of Matthew? We have. These are almost the exact same words that Satan used in his temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. Let me read a portion of that passage to you. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. After this, Satan goes on to say to Jesus, If you'll just worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. What is going on here is Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to abandon his cross-shaped mission. The mission of the suffering Son of God. And this temptation which began Jesus' ministry continued to be present throughout Jesus' ministry All the way to the point where he hung on that cross. Remember in his first prediction of his crucifixion to his disciples. What did Peter say to him? This shall never happen to you. Not to our king. Not to the Messiah. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me Satan. For you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but the things of man. And now, even now, as he hangs on the cross and people say, if you are the Son of God, the voice of Satan still rings in his ear, but he had already decided in the Garden of Gethsemane that he would drink the cup. The cup that his father had for him. Satan would not get in his way. Peter would not get in his way. The crowds would not get in his way. Nobody would get in his way. Nothing would deter Jesus from fulfilling his mission. And friends, he would inherit all of the nations of the earth. But not through bowing down to Satan. Not through abandoning the cross. Not through abandoning his mission. He would gain authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth through fulfilling the mission that God had given him. He may seem powerless, but he's working in power on the cross. That's the third irony of the cross. The final one is this. The man who wouldn't save himself saved others. This is drawn out in verses 41 to 44. Where the members of the sanhedrin, the same ones who arrested him, who tried him, who sent him to Pilate, the chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, they now join in mocking him. I bet they really enjoyed it they say. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. When they say he saved others, they're referring to the miracles that Jesus had performed. He had healed others. He had cast out demons. He would even raised Lazarus from the dead all of this an attestation that he was the son of God right but now they're saying if you really are the son of God surely you've got the power to come down from the cross surely if you saved others you can save yourself but the irony is praise God that the only way to save others is through not Saving himself. They're referring to one kind of saving. But Jesus came to accomplish a far more important form of saving. When you think of the word saving. It can mean different things in different contexts. If I ask George Foucher what he means by saving. The first thing that's going to come to his mind is saving money. Because he's a finance guy. If. I were to ask you, if you're sitting at your computer, what it means to save, you may think of saving a file. If I were to ask Greer Keis what she thinks of saving, as a goalie, a really good one, she's going to think of not letting the other team score a point, getting a save, right? Jesus has done all kinds of saving within the Gospel of Matthew. He saved people from sickness. He saved them from demonic of oppression. He has saved them even from death. He has saved them from the effects of sin. But the main reason he came was not at his first coming to save them from the effects of sin, but to save them from their sins. The miracles point to a day in the future when the effects of sin will be dealt with at Jesus' second coming. But at his first coming, He came to save us from our sins. And the only way He can do that is if He doesn't save Himself from the cross. Jesus is the Son of God and God does desire to deliver Him. In fact, God will deliver Him, but not from death. He will deliver Him through death and the resurrection from the dead. Friends, there's an important point here for us as well. Jesus is our Savior. We cry out to Him, Hosanna, save us, we pray. But we do not have a promise that we will be saved from temporal sufferings, from the death of our loved ones, from our own death. But if we place our trust in Jesus, we can be saved from our sins and we will one day too be delivered from the effects of sins through the resurrection from the dead. Praise God. In verse 44, we read the final response of those who were present at the cross. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. I think this is Matthew's way of saying the rejection is complete. Everybody who is seeing what is happening does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Everybody in this story is mocking Jesus. The soldiers, the passerbys, the Sanhedrin, and now even... These criminals who are at his right hand and his left all say with great irony, Hail, King of the Jews! But they don't believe that any king worth anything to them could be crucified. But the irony behind it all, just to summarize what I've been saying, is that this crucified one is the king indeed. Not only that, he's also the temple. He is also the savior of men, the king of Israel, the son of God. The crucifixion doesn't call any of this into question. A crucified king may be folly to the Gentiles like the soldiers. It may be a stumbling block to the Jews, but the basic message for us is for those who are being saved, And only to those who are being saved. Both Jews and Gentiles. The cross of Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Jesus wasn't coronated with pomp and circumstance. He was enthroned on a cross. He did this all for a purpose. To save his people from their sin. A people from every tribe, tongue. And nation. At Jesus' first coming, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you okay with that? Or does this bother you? Is the way of suffering before glory a stumbling block for you? Is it folly to you? Or do you see it as the very wisdom of God? At his first coming, to quote Paul in Philippians 2, Jesus took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But, and this is where the turn comes. That's not the end of the story. Following his death on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where am I going with all of this? I'm calling you to respond is what I'm doing. One day... Everyone will say, Hail, King of the Jews. But it won't be ironic anymore. It will be a great joy to those who have said hail to the King in this life. To those who have received forgiveness of their sins through the death of Christ. It will be a great joy to them on that day. But it will be an awful day for those who mock Him today. What's your response to Jesus? Is all of this Christianity just a joke to you? I hope not. I pray not. Because if that's where you're at, the joke will be on you one day. But nobody will be laughing. Today is the day. To acknowledge your need for a Savior to acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior that you need, to repent of your sins, and to bow to Him as King, thankfully, to the crucified King. If you see Him as Savior and Lord, I pray that you will rejoice and give thanks. Nobody expected the coming of the King to die on a cross But praise God, we're here to celebrate that He did the unexpected. Let us pray. Thank You for the cross, Lord. Thank You for the price You paid. Bearing our sin and our shame. Father, the sin is ours. The shame is what we deserve. We thank you that Christ paid the price for us. I pray for anybody in this room who has not yet surrendered their life fully to the crucified King, that they would do so today. For the rest of us, that you would help us to rejoice and to give thankfulness to what you have done for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.